Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. And it's good to be back with you. I have been on break, as it were. I've been enjoying a lot of family time in between the fall and spring semester, but the semester has started now. We just finished our first couple classes this week, and so it's good to be back into the regular swing of things. And with that, hopefully, we'll be back to the regular schedule of podcasting and putting on some episodes for your consumption. I know there have been a couple people who have asked me why there was such a long break, and my father-in-law, for one, you know, has been waiting by his phone for the next episode. So I will try to try to keep on this and doing the episodes. And today I'm excited for this one because this one it, it can be it can be confusing when you read through it uh, in the biblical text. When you read through it, it can be confusing at first, and then also on a scholarly level, there's actually a, a lot of theories as to what's going on. In this passage, and so I'm happy to kind of talk through some of them, point out some of the intricacies and what I do and don't think works in a passage like this. So with that in mind, let us look at Genesis 9, and what we're going to talk about today is the curse of Canaan in Genesis 9, and what in the world is going on in Genesis 9, 20 through 27. And I'm just going to read through the first uh, four verses of this text, just so we have it in our minds, then we can talk through some of the details. Verse 20 starts off this way. Of course, this is uh, post-flood, uh, just on the heels of God's uh, worldwide destruction through the flood. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and this is verse five, or verse 25, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And then it goes on and uh, gives a blessing for Shem and Japheth. Now, as we look at this passage, and I was reading from the ESV, but as we look at this passage, there's a couple questions that come into mind. Namely, the first one is, what in the world is going on here, right? But also, it seems that Ham is doing something that is wicked, but yet Canaan gets cursed for that. And we need to pick up on that because Canaan is actually the son of Ham, and Ham isn't the one who receives the curse, it's Canaan. And so some people have identified that and use that as evidence to support their view. And we, we want to, we want to work through, through this passage, uh, accurately and take into account this kind of evidence. So what in the world's going on? Well, there are basically, I would say four views as to what you could describe as going on. And I'm going to try to go through them somewhat quickly. Although I'm going to explain in the view some of the different evidences uh, that really pertain to those views. And then I'm going to kind of try to summarize and, and say how we should be thinking about these things. 
So the first of the views, which is kind of the traditional view, maybe you could say, or the conservative view, is you could label it voyeurism, uh, which is basically just all that happened is that Ham looked on the nakedness of his father and that was sinful. Now, obviously, one of the claimed advantages of this position is that it doesn't go beyond the text. The text says that Ham looked at the nakedness of his father, and so that's what we should say happened, right? But one of the big counters to this view is, well, is looking at the nakedness of your dad that big of a deal? I mean, based on what follows in in the next couple of verses— uh, with some cursing going on, is is that really a big enough sin to see what's going on here? And ad- additionally, the this view may also have difficulty explaining why Canaan was cursed rather than Ham. Since Ham's the one who committed the sin, why in the world would Canaan be cursed because of just Ham's looking on his father's nakedness? So that those are some of the issues with that view, and we'll talk more about that in a second. The or a second, I mean, of course, you know, I'm being hyper. I'm using my hyperbole with that, of course. But castration is the second view, uh, and this has probably uh, been one of the more traditional Jewish views. You can read about this in Jewish commentaries, and and some of the rabbis surmised that what went on here is that Ham actually castrated Noah. Now, one of the reasons they say this is because this would be evidence of the fact that Ham's trying to usurp Noah's authority, become the head of the household, kind of become the authority in the family. And so to do so, he's going to castrate Noah. And there are parallels, at least one parallel, in ancient Near Eastern mythology where a son castrates his father in an effort to usurp authority. So some some scholars say, you know what, that's probably what's going on. However, it this is this is uh, a minority view to say the least because there's hardly any evidence in the text that there could be anything construed this way uh, to indicate castration. So. Even though it's out there in some Jewish rabbinical literature and there is possibly some ancient Near Eastern parallels, it's not really a very popular view. And so we won't talk too much more about it, but it is worth noting that some people have said that it could be castration going on here. But again, there's no way you could really tell that from the text. The third view, which has been heavily popularized today by two notable scholars who are more conservative in nature, um, would be uh, Bob Gagnon in his book on homosexuality and Don Wold, who also has a book on uh, sexuality in the ancient Near East. And what this view is, is the view of paternal incest or homosexual relations. So what this view says is basically that Han, Ham goes in and sleeps with his dad in a homosexual relationship in order to attempt to usurp authority that way. And again, that, that's one of the common threads in these, in these viewpoints, uh, especially the last three viewpoints, is that Ham's trying to usurp the authority of his father, and so his action in some way is contributing to that. And so in the ancient Near East, 
uh, often in homosexual relationships, the one who uh, was the active partner in the relationship, if you will, he exercised more authority. He was higher up on the food chain. That That's how it's often uh, described. And so when the text says, for example, in Genesis 9, that, quote, he realized what his youngest son had done, um, or in the ESV, as the ESV says, and he knew what his youngest son had done to him, this view, the paternal incest view, says, well, that means that Noah knew he had been victimized in some way, or there was, there was a physical uh, there were, there was physical evidence that something sexual had happened to him. And so he, he knew because he was drunk, passed out before, but then when he woke up, he's, he saw, Hey, look, I, kn- I know what happened. So that's part of the evidence for this view that people, people come and try to contribute. Uh, the other evidence of this is found in the phrase, quote, to see the nakedness of the father. Now, if you look through scripture, especially uh, in Leviticus 18 and 20, you see that the phrase uncover nakedness is used in places for sexual sins. I mean, you can just cross-reference Leviticus 18 specifically. You can look at verse 6 for an easy example of that. Ezekiel 16, 36 through 37. Ezekiel 22, 23. They all have evidence of the fact that to uncover nakedness, which uses a different verb than to see nakedness, but the the word to uncover nakedness is used in many places as a euphemism or an idiom of sexual intercourse. Okay, that that is true, and that is an important piece of evidence. Now, what this view goes on to say, the paternal incest view goes on to make evident, is that not only is to uncover nakedness a idiom of sexual intercourse, but also to see nakedness is an idiom of sexual intercourse. And to do that, if you go to Leviticus 20, 17, it seems to be used in tandem that way. And I'm just going to read that for you. In 2017, it says, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. So what they would say, according to this view, is that uncovering nakedness and seeing nakedness is used in parallel, and therefore is a, I I guess, a similar idiom. So they mean the same thing. To see nakedness, to uncover nakedness, uh, means the same thing. And we're going to come back to this point uh, in a little bit because I think it's important to talk about, but I'm just kind of surveying it right now. Uh, also, uh, different scholars have pointed out that there seem to be erotically charged words in this narrative. And I'm not a huge, I, I don't think this this point deserves much merit at all, but I'm just giving it to you for what they're, what they're saying is that they say things like, Wine uh, is often connected with sexuality in the Bible and ancient Near East. So anytime you see wine, like in this passage, you should automatically start thinking about sex. 
a vineyard is a place of lovemaking, you know, so therefore when you see the idea of vineyard, you should also be thinking about sex and Noah Mm -hmm. uncovering himself, you know, nakedness, all these terms should conjure up the idea of a, of a sexual background. Now, I do think there are some words that are more commonly used in sexual uh, backgrounds and sexual circumstances. But at the same time, some of these words, most of these words, can have multiple contexts. And so just because they are used in those situations doesn't mean that's automatically what's going on. So we need to be careful with figuring that out. Uh, Also... Uh, I mentioned this briefly, but this view also has credit to it in the fact that this fits with a, this view, the paternal incest view fits with what is a normal, probably what I would say is a scholarly quote unquote consensus among most people, uh, about using, uh, sex as a means of domination and authority. So in that, and this, really ought to be nuanced, but in a lot of people's minds, it was just normal for, uh, for sex to be a avenue or a means by which you show authority over other people. Now, I actually think that that's not really proven biblically speaking in the Old Testament literature. That's more, I do think that that does belong in, in Greek literature, certainly. I mean, there's, there's lots of uh, testimony to that fact, but I just don't see that in the ancient Near East, um, uh, in the biblical literature, or that that would have been the thinking of Old Testament characters. So I think, I think, although that's that's thrown out there as evidence, uh, I don't think that that's exactly where we need to go all the time. Now, one of the things that I'll, I'll note here, just in passing, before we go to the last view, is that one counterpoint which needs to be considered is that uh, this view is arguing that to see nakedness is is an idiom for sexual intercourse. But one thing I think is really important to think about is that if you are going to talk about seeing someone's nakedness just in a literary way, uh, just normally, hey, you know, I saw nakedness, how else would you say it? I mean, this is the normal word for seeing, for viewing in Hebrew, and this is the normal word for nakedness. So it's one of the things that I think is often downplayed is, sure, maybe it's an idiom, but how else would you just talk about seeing someone's nakedness in a matter-of-fact way? And this is exactly how you would do it. So the burden of proof uh, should be on people's shoulders to prove that this is an idiom and to prove that this is an idiom in place in this passage. So that's something that we need to keep in mind. All right. So I spent a lot of uh, time on that view because that's probably, probably the most common view on this passage. If not, um, if that's not this next one is because they have a lot in common. So the last view was the third view was paternal incest. The fourth view is maternal incest. So, so far we've had voyeurism, just looking on nakedness. We've had castration. We've had uh, paternal incest. And now we're looking at maternal incest. And this is a view that was really championed by two scholars uh, in a JBL article in 2005. Their names are Bergsma and Hahn, H-A-H-N. And it's also been popularized by Michael Heiser, who um, is, I, I really appreciate him. He's a, he's a good Old Testament scholar, very popular, uh, easy to understand, really breaks things down. 
and they they um, have all kind of championed this view. And there's a lot of overlap from the last view because they also say that there's a lot of sexual um, things going on in this passage. You have the uses of erva, nakedness. You have ra'ah to see, gala to uncover. So all this Hebrew terminology has uh, sexual connotation. But the difference in the maternal incest view is that these terminologies are more naturally fitted to a heterosexual context and not homosexual. So, for example, the scholars would say uh, that the the situations where homosexual homosexuality is talked about in the Old Testament, you have different words like shakav to lie with instead of to see to uncover, and those kinds of uh, Hebrew vocabulary words. Now, also one of the one of the things that are brought that is brought up in this view, especially with regard to Leviticus eighteen is that the term nakedness of your father in Leviticus 18, 7 through 8 is defined actually as the nakedness of your mother. And so if I, I'll bring that up and just read that real quick for us. Uh, verse 7 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. So in other words, what... Uh, it's saying there is that when you think about the nakedness of your father, that's actually the nakedness of your mother. They're equated. And I think there's some, there's something else going on here too with regard to the one flesh relationship talking about marriage. Obviously they, they are viewed as one. I think that's what's going on here. But the point that the maternal incest view is making is that the definition of nakedness of father ought to be thought of in relationship to the mother. And so the implication then would be that when Ham saw the nakedness of his father, that's actually a euphemism in Genesis 9 to say that Ham had sex with Noah's wife. That's the viewpoint of maternal incest. One of the other things you have here as evidence for this view is that Ham is referred to twice. It seems at least once more than you would need as the father of Canaan. I didn't read this, but in verse 18... Uh, it identifies Ham as the father of Canaan. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan. Ham appears to be identified intentionally as the father of Canaan. And, and you ask, well, why is that? Why would it be necessary for us to know that Ham is Canaan's father unless, and this is the implication of this view, Canaan is the offspring of Ham and Noah's wife. So that uh, kind of comes with a a big uh, uh-oh factor, uh, and that also would, in this view, explain why Canaan is the one who's cursed. <clears throat> now, although that seems to connect some dots, I'm not. I'm. I actually don't think that's necessarily. Uh, I. I guess I. I I'm not super convinced that that is a good enough explanation for why Canaan is cursed. If Canaan is, if Canaan is cursed just for being born of an illegitimate union, you know, what does that say? I, I mean, I don't think that's, that's just necessarily in and of itself. Okay. So, so even though that's brought forward as a view, I'm, I'm not super convinced on that. However, uh, this view also, uh, Contains that same idea of usurping authority. 
uh, although it relies on more commonly attributed Old Testament examples of sleeping with someone's wives or concubines in an attempt to usurp authority. So, for example, Second Samuel 15, Genesis 35 and, and 49, you see that referring to the same situation there. Second Kings 2, all those passages have areas where someone is trying to sleep with someone else's wives or concubines in order to show that they now possess that authority. Now, the last uh, piece of evidence for this view, which is which is brought forward is in verse 21. And this, you kind of have to know Hebrew to at least recognize the significance of this, but I'll explain it the best I can is that in verse 21, you see reference made to in the consonantal text that we have from the Masoretic tradition, we have a reference to what is her tent. It's Ohel is the, uh, I know, it, it sounds bad, but in Hebrew, it's fine. And it uh, is, ohel is the word for tent. <clears throat> and the in Hebrew, you have a suffix appended to the word uh, in order to indicate if there's any possessive features for it. So normally, uh, you have o is the suffix for his tent, and ach is the word for her tent. And so the consonantal text has a, has a, uh, an extra ach at the end, so to speak. I'm simplifying things, but that's what's going on here in, in verse 21. And so some people have said, see, it's talking about her tent, talking about Noah's wife's tent. Um, but, and, and people have made, Heiser makes a big point of this. Uh, but, but one of the things that's interesting about Hebrew, and I'll just state it and you'll kind of have to take my word for this unless you do some research is that Hebrew, through its language transitions, would also use this ending to communicate his tent, especially in older Hebrew. And there are examples of that. I mean, if you look at Hebrews 12.8, or Hebrews, Genesis 12.8 and Genesis 13.3, you'll see this exact same form used to refer to his tent, a male's tent, uh, Abraham's tent. And so you... It's really clawing at something that's not there to say that the Hebrew is supporting the fact that it's referring to her tent here. In fact, uh, one of the books I have, which is the most nerdy title ever, Phonology and Morphology of Biblical Hebrew, actually talks about this, where the this apparently feminine ending is used to communicate a masculine ending in some places. So just knowing some of the morphological background of Hebrew kind of erases this argument, but you'll hear it. But just remember that this argument doesn't have any traction whatsoever. Now, one of the other things about uh, this passage um, that this, this view really kind of has to deal with is in verse 24, it says, when Noah woke from the wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Well, if the tragedy is Canaan being the offspring of Ham and Noah's wife, he he couldn't know that right away, waking up. So what this view has to say is that this is actually a compression of the chronology and that it's actually jumping nine nine months down the road, or I guess you could, you know, whenever uh whenever Noah's wife uh shows signs of being pregnant, that's when Noah would figure it out. But it really seems contextually that Noah is figuring it out right when he wakes up because of the 
the verb pattern just going in normal sequence. So although it's possible it could be a compression, that would just really kind of be weird. And it uh, would not be normal, we'll say that. It uh, it seems that th- that would be a jump uh, to conclude. So all that to say, there are a few views out here um, on what's going on. And, well, what do I think we should think about this passage? Well, I think, <laughs> surprise, surprise, I guess, I think that the first view, uh, reading the passage in a normal manner, is still the best view. I don't think castration has any merits whatsoever. And although paternal and maternal incest does have some evidence to put forward, I think that really you don't need those views to make sense of the passage. And I think there are also some problems with the passage. For example, uh, we talked about how to see the nakedness of the father is apparently used elsewhere as an idiom for sexual intercourse, but uh, it's... It's possible that even in that passage, which is just one verse, Leviticus 20, 17, it's used to communicate something else. It could be an emphatic description of the realization of sexuality or something like that. It could be the, because the word for seeing can be used in different circumstances and it could be with the recognition of nakedness or the acceptance of, you could, it doesn't have to be the act of sexuality. Um, but even if it is, that's fine. I, I, for the sake of argument, we can assume that. However, there are also places where it, to see nakedness is definitely not used as an idiom for sexual intercourse. For example, Genesis 42.9 and Lamentations 1.8. It's, uh, very clear that there, uh, Genesis 42.9, specifically um, in the story of Joseph, Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies when they come to Egypt to see the nakedness of the land. Well, Joseph is not accusing his brothers of uh, having sexual intercourse with the land of Egypt, okay? I mean, that's just obvious. So there, there has to be an acknowledgement that this does not have to be an idiom of sexual intercourse. And so here, it goes back to a point I made earlier, if you were going to talk about seeing the, the nakedness of the father, how else would you do it besides saying he saw the nakedness? Plus, let's think about the context. In verse 23, it's very clear Shem and Japheth take a garment, walk backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. Well, what in the, why would it include that detail of specifically being sensitive to actual nakedness? I mean, if, if it was something that Ham did of a sexual nature, there's no point in walking backwards. There's no point in doing that. So, I mean, if you're just reading this at a straightforward surface level, it just makes most sense to see this as a real issue of looking at nakedness. I, I think that there's no reason to go searching for other explanations. But be that as it may, the other thing that we need to make make known is that this isn't just an issue of voyeurism, looking at somebody and enjoying the fact that they're naked or something like that. It actually comes down to disrespect for parents. Because if you read the text, what happens is Ham saw the father, uh, saw the nakedness of his fathers, and then he goes out and tells his brothers. And the word for tell isn't just has a conversation, but it's, it's to declare, to announce. To inform. So, and that's, and that's linked in a, uh, in the chronological backbone in the Hebrew narrative to communicate the idea that Ham first saw the nakedness of his father and then subsequent to that, because of that, 
uh, he starts to talk to his brothers about it. And in so doing, he's shaming and humiliating his father. And as, as a, uh, one who is supposed to be under the submission of his father, that is wrong. And I mean, let's think about the Ten Commandments, for example. Honor your father and mother. Well, that doesn't just start in under the law. That's built into creation. Parents are to have authority over their children. Children are to respect and honor their parents. And so here's just a very... I like to say it this way. Genesis 9 is, is one of the earliest examples we have of children um, dishonoring and disrespecting their parents. And this is... And Ham's... You know, joking around maybe, uh, saying, Hey, you know what? You know, dad's naked in the tent. I saw his nakedness. He's not, you know, worthy of our respect, worthy of our honor. Um, that, that whole deal, that whole deal. And I think the idea that it's just him seeing the nakedness is really doing a disservice to the text because the text makes a big deal about the fact that he told his brothers and his response, Ham's response is contrasted to Shem and Japheth's response. Ham doesn't do anything, just just goes out and tells people about it. Shem and Japheth don't tell anybody about it. Instead, they take action and cover the nakedness of their father. So even though sexual trans transgressions are a possibility, I mean, there is something to be said about that. I just think the normal, straightforward reading of this text is the way to see it. Plus, I think we ought not to downplay the idea of what a shame it was to be seen naked in the ancient Near East. I mean, you have uh, I, I, our culture, at least in the um, Western culture, in the United States especially, you know, we, we're all about running around with as few clothes as possible, but uh, it's just shameful. Even in, even in the Middle East today, you know, you go around and you see people, uh, they're, they're very modest in how they dress. And even when I, when I was in Israel, for example, there are places you have to go where, you know, your knees have to be covered, right? All the way down, not just your knees. The assumption is everything down past your knees, right? So that's important. Uh, and so it, it wasn't just about the shame of being naked, although that was significantly more than what we would realize as Westerners. It was really significant in their time, but it's also about proclaiming that to uh, Noah's shame, and that's that's Ham's sin. Lastly, we also need to understand that sins early on in biblical history, I mean, we're only at Genesis 9, only eight chapters have passed, and we've had a worldwide flood, and so humanity's starting over again. Uh, sins early on have a devastating effect. So, so Ham sins, and because of this sin, there are drastic consequences. But are the consequences fair? And I do want to say just a little bit about that. And I want to say, say it this way is that yes, Canaan, Ham's son is cursed. Um, why is that? Well, I think there's, there's part, partly, uh, the fact that because Ham, Noah's son disrespected Noah, now Cain, or now Ham is, is given a son who will forever, uh, follow that line of disrespect and sin and rebellion of God. And so in, in one sense, that also impacts Ham, right? It's not just an impact of Canaan. But even that, I, I also think, and I think there's biblical, uh, backing for this is that Canaan isn't just being punished for the sins of his father. It's not as if Ham sinned and so Canaan is now 
being cursed and he's not going to contribute to that in any way. When you look at the biblical storyline, Canaan it, Canaan and his descendants buy into that attitude of rebellion and disrespect that exemplified Ham. It's There's no question about it. So Canaan seems to embrace wholeheartedly the the attitude of his progenitor, of Ham. And we see this even in our own examples today. I, I, um, recently, I was looking up some statistics on the the just the stats for children of incarcerated parents. And parents who have been in prison, their children are five times more likely to commit crimes and end up being in prison. In fact, according to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in 2008, 70% of children with incarcerated parents end up in prison. So what's the point of those statistics? Well, obviously, if you have parents who pave the way of uh, just sinfulness, rebellion, and and that kind of attitude, well, children are going to follow in that. We see this in Israel's history a lot, too. The children of Israel in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they complain saying, oh, we've been punished because our fathers sinned. And what God tells them through the prophets is that, listen, you you are receiving the consequences for the sins of prior generations, but you are receiving the consequences because you continue in that sin. You are also responsible for that. And so if they were to repent... From that sin, God would, God would remove that. Now, I think there's a great example of this. Obviously, I said that the Canaanites are an eminently wicked people, you know, sacrificing children, doing all these things. Uh, the, the Canaanites become so wicked that God just has to say, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna clean house, wipe them out, and Israel is going to get the land of Canaan. The Canaanites are going to be destroyed because of their sin, because of their sin. But are there any Canaanites who uh, forsake the way of Canaan, as it were, and embrace embrace the way of Yahweh. And of course, that happens, right? Rahab is the best example of that in the book of Joshua. And she says, I've heard about your God. I turn my back on our way of life, and I embrace the way of Yahweh, right? So she's an example of a Canaanite, one who's descended from Canaan, who turns her back on that lifestyle that's been passed down from generation to generation and she embraces the way of Yahweh. So just because Canaan's cursed does not mean that every single one of his descendants are being illegitimately punished. No, they are buying into this concept of sin and rebellion. And so it's just a great reminder of the fact that yes, God is sovereign and God is sovereignly uh orchestrating this and saying, you know what? Canaan is cursed because of this sin that Ham has done. But at the same time, there's there's human responsibility going hand in hand with that because Canaan and all of his descendants end up being rebellious, end up being enemies of God's people. They they reap what they sow essentially. And so it may be a difficult uh it may be a difficult issue in some ways, but I think that's that's a good way of looking at it and I think that's the best explanation that we can 
we can look at. So even though we have all these different views, I, I just think we read the text as it is. I don't think there's any hidden meaning or anything that's dropped out. I just think that what we have here is a shameful looking at nakedness and a, and a dishonoring of parents at the core. And I think that's the best way to understand that passage. So I hope you've enjoyed that. It was a lot of detail, but thanks for listening. As always, you can email me your comments or questions. Uh, my email is peter at petergaming.com. For more information on the podcast or about me, visit petergaming.com. For more information on Shepherd's Seminary, visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, we'll see you later.